Wednesday Live. I'm Graham Lynch. We've got a big show this week, so let's get into it. Uh, there's all sorts of news around about Samsung, fiber optic cables to Antarctica, um, Telco's misbehaving, and uh, a, a feature interview today with Matt Tett um, on the very interesting topic of internet security. Um, but we're going to kick off with Simon Ducks, Chief Editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Okay, let's go straight into it. Now, we've talked about this topic quite a lot in the past, and that's the, uh, the, re- the relative lack of 5G vendors in the market as a result of the ban on Huawei and CTE. Well, this week, that all changed. Tell us about it, Simon. Yeah, that's right, Graham. Uh, it's uh, quite funny because I think uh, Samsung have uh, been absolutely uh, tearing their hair out at how many times we've been asking them about Samsung networks in Australia. Uh, Obviously, the handset uh, uh, division is a a big part of the Australian mobile scene. And uh, it's finally happened. Uh, Samsung have announced that they're going to uh, launch their network business uh, in Australia, and they've done that this week. Uh, They're already in New Zealand. Uh, They have a deal with Spark and uh, helped Spark build out its 5G network in Christchurch. Uh, But uh, as you pointed out, this is going to be proper, credible competition now for Ericsson and Nokia. Uh, Obviously, Samsung will be trying to get into uh, one of the big three mobile operators. But there's uh, plenty of potential targets for them because, uh, as we know, the um, government auctions uh, for two gig of uh, spectrum in the 26 gig band kicked off uh, this week as well. And Samsung have said that they're really going to push uh, 5G MM wave radio solutions in both 26 gig and 28 gig uh, spectrum. Now, that gives them quite a few opportunities there because obviously uh, the ACMA is also award a lot of area wide licenses as well. And uh, we're going to see a lot of business models around how MMWave is actually deployed, uh, both in Metro for network densification, uh, but also uh, quite a few interesting fixed wireless um, applications as well. And uh, they've appointed a uh, head of um, networks in Australia, uh, a guy called Jonathan Ang, uh, who uh, we know quite well. Uh, Jonathan was uh, working for Huawei Australia for uh, quite a while, and in fact, was looking after the TPG account. So uh, we expect that uh, he's going to have a pretty good view on how Samsung could potentially help uh, TPG out, for example. Uh, We also uh, know that Samsung had uh, a particular uh, link back uh, to uh, Telstra. uh, And uh, as you pointed out in 2018, uh, Andy Penn did actually say when they were looking at a vendor shortlist that uh, uh, Samsung was actually on that shortlist and they weren't necessarily going to stick all of their eggs in the Ericsson basket. And uh, so, you know, there are potential uh, opportunities there as well. So I think when you look at their innovation, uh, they had the breakthrough win with Verizon, uh, an absolutely huge contract on 5G, nudging out uh, Nokia, although Verizon's kept Nokia as a uh, private LTE 5G partner uh, for a new global uh, service that they're rolling out. Uh, we think uh, as long as they can staff up, then they're going to be quite an interesting alternative uh, for the operators to at least get some uh, pretty good price competition on some of their equipment. Oh, absolutely. And of course, th- this um, satisfies the, this uh, Five Eyes, I mean, of course, un- under President Donald Trump, it was called Clean Networks. And, and the general Five Eyes push to create diversity 
in the supply chain for 5G. Of course, Samsung uh, was always a mobile vendor, but they didn't have that global scale that Ericsson and Nokia have. And of course, now they seem to be developing it. So uh, it's definitely one to watch. Now, moving on, there seems to be some momentum growing amongst uh, Australian government agencies to build uh, first-grade telecom infrastructure connecting Australia to the southern continent of Antarctica. So who's behind this, Simon? That's right. We reported in February that uh, Geoscience Australia was uh, pushing a plan to build an undersea fibre cable between Tasmania and Antarctica, uh, probably going via Macquarie Island. And uh, it's, it's interesting uh, to us. This was uh, part of, um, there's a uh, federal parliamentary inquiry at the moment uh, looking at uh, national capital and external territories, which is uh, looking at their communications needs. And that's part of the submission uh, to this. And uh, it, it, it turns out that the Australian Antarctic Division and the Bureau of Meteorology have backed up uh, geosciences push. Uh, they really feel that this is something that should be explored. And uh, it's interesting because uh, it's becoming uh, the final frontier, if you like, uh, because uh, as we were uh, talking about uh, earlier in the year, we have the... Uh, cable that uh, Remy Galasso is involved with and, and pushing uh, with the uh, Chilean government coming across to New Zealand. Um, separate and interesting cable, but as part of that, uh, Remy has also been talking about the feasibility of p- potentially connecting Invercargill in New Zealand uh, to Antarctica as well. So it is becoming an interesting focus. Uh, the key thing that the agencies are suggesting is obviously it's going to give them a lot better uh, connectivity to roll out cloud-type services and uh, improve a lot of their uh, sensor data um, retrieval and uh, processing, essentially. Now, it doesn't go without particular risks. You know, uh, some of that water down there is uh, not very well charted. And uh, you've also got issues with uh, seasonal icebergs. And uh, so uh, the agencies are actually suggesting that they want to beef up at the same time their satellite um, backup as well. Uh, They're currently using uh, Speedcast uh, with a backup of uh, Imarsat Began. And uh, they're suggesting that actually they should be looking at potential having uh, dual redundancy uh, satellite system. And uh, they've suggested that uh, we should also be looking at uh, LeoSats as a potential option for this redundancy. And it's not an either or. They're not saying uh, fiber or satellite. They're suggesting uh, each uh, technology could complement the other. So uh, it's going to be an interesting thing on how they uh, push that through, because obviously it might be a fairly expensive cable to lay as well. Okay. well, on that note, Simon, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks again, Graham. Well, there's a a lot of jibber-jabber around about internet security, but not necessarily a lot of action at the coalface. As a consumer or an enterprise user, how do I know that my internet-enabled device is secure and safe to use? How do I trust a firmware upgrade? Well, Matt Tett of NX Test Labs is doing something about it. Welcome to the show, Matt. G'day, Graham. How are you? I'm, I'm great. Thanks very much for joining us today. Now, you've been working on a project called the Internet of Things Security Trustmark Certification and Labeling Scheme. Can you tell us more about it and what it's all about? 
Well, our, our first problem is we can't find a decent acronym for it. So, you know, we're trying to move outside the traditional information and communications technologies and into the Internet of Things environment. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big mouthful. It's a lot of words. But, um, yes, we've developed this uh, IoT Security Trust Mark Certification and Labelling Scheme, um, which is designed to be a global program for vendors to voluntarily participate in and hopefully um, have their security claims independently tested and assessed and provide assurance for their clients, whether they're governments or um, businesses or even mums and dads, um, to make sure that they've got certain levels of security attributes, which um, various jurisdictions around the world are, are really good at releasing good guidelines and best practices and good practices and um, frameworks. And even some countries like the UK and the US are introducing um, IoT security legislation for minimum levels of expected security. But yeah, we're hoping that the vendors will actually step up and put their products through the place, paces and uh, ensure that they um, meet at least those minimum requirements, if not more. Now, you're, you're doing this in your capacity as the founder and operator of edX Test Labs. How, how will this scheme work in, in practice? You know, if I'm, I'm manufacturing some kind of IoT device, what do I have to do to get it certified? Yeah, so we currently um, put a call out um, a couple of months ago for some pilot participants. So we're looking to get some vendors on board um, to go through the process. But essentially, um, yeah, there's a number of levels in, in I guess, the, the chain. So in each, each country, there'll be a host country uh, association. Um, they're backed up by a technical decision authority in that in that area and the decision authority is supported by accredited test facilities so again keeping this program at a global um, level it means it can be replicated in a number of countries and jurisdictions and essentially um, the vendors so you know whatever the vendor is of an iot product would approach the accredited test facilities with a request to put their product through through the processes um, the accredited test facility would engage with them, provide them with an estimate, and now there's a maximum cap on cost and a maximum cap on time frame. So a lot of vendors, when we were first working on these programs some um, years ago, um, said, look, you know, cost of compliance and the time to get our products through certification has always been a burden for us. You know, how are you going to address that? And so we have a maximum cap of, of value and time. And so it can't take any more than 30 days to put a product through the process to get a pass or a fail. Uh, and obviously, it can't cost um, more than a certain amount. We're still setting what that amount is, but it's it's not an onerous amount for for the vendors. Um, obviously, it's got to represent good value for them and also benefit the consumer um, as well. So we don't want the cost of devices that are certified to be twice the cost of devices that are unsecure or, or non-certified. So, so yeah, so basically they engage with the accredited test facility. The test facility will then work with them to create um, an, a, a vendor's claims document, which is essentially documenting the claims that the vendor has made around the security of their product. But as you can imagine with IoT, it could be everything from modems and routers through to smart TVs and smart speakers right right up to, um, to you know, more complex um, networking technologies. So, you know, we're trying to ensure that we're as generic as possible without being too too specific or go down into too too much detail. They'll then um, create that vendor claims document. They'll submit that vendor claims document al along with a high-level test methodology or plan to the de decision authority. The decision authority will review that, and then they'll essentially come back and say, yep, execute the testing. 
the accredited test facility will execute the testing on the products and then issue a letter of recommendation to the decision authority to decide whether or not that product um, should be certified or not, along with the test report and the test report summary, which um, the summary will be published on the um, IoT Security um, Trustmark website, uh, along with the evaluated products list to say that the product has um, has passed. So yeah, it's quite a straightforward process, but it's quite rigorous as well. Now, now historically in the telecom world, um, we, we've, we've seen what I understand to be a compulsory accreditation process for devices that attach to the public network. And of course, a lot of people will be familiar We've seen the, the logos of the FCC and the old Austel on the, on the back of telephones yep. and so on. That you don't believe there should be compulsion for this. Why is that? Well, it's, it's sort of interesting. Security is a bit... Uh, I think a lot of people are scared of security. A lot of people bury their head in the sand. A lot of people confuse um, security with safety and privacy. Um, and I think a, a lot of all those things do go, go together. One of the biggest um, issues we've seen... Uh, with that is it's easy to write a standard. So you have your Australian standards, British standards, international standards. The issue with security is there's no standard. So it's a bit like um, the banks in the olden days. You know, you had your horse and cart with your, your gold chest on there and then someone realised with an axe you could get into the gold chest so they made them out of steel and they realised they could cut into those with saws. And security is an ever-evolving um, beast, I guess, if you, if you like to think of it like that. And so depending on the value of the target or the value of the information, if it's electronic, that people are trying to access, um, particularly the bad guys, they'll they'll keep changing and they'll be dynamic and they'll keep figuring out new and different ways of getting at that information. So a vendor, can, well, it would be good that they have 100% security. You can never have 100% security in anything. It's impossible. Um, and so at the end of the day, we had to develop a certification program that, ensured that the vendors which were following best or good practice maintained that and got rewarded for that. And so essentially we're looking at the current point in time, how good are they at protecting things? And and the issue is, as we've seen with all the security breaches and incidents, it doesn't matter how good you think your security defences are, they can always be penetrated. And so at the end of the day, we're looking at rewarding the vendors who are placing security in their customers first and foremost rather than ones that are bolting on security at the end having it as an afterthought trying to patch things after the the horse is bolted so you can't define a standard per se like you could define something like electrical safety standards where it's a tick box exercise so yeah unfortunately that's something that security practitioners have been struggling with for, for decades now and there's no um silver bullet unfortunately so this this provides assurance that the claims that the vendors are actually making are, are correct, true and correct. I mean, perfect example is marketing departments. I mean, I'm sure you, you speak to a few of them in your day-to-day job, Graham, and, and has anyone ever told you about the bad sides of their products? <laughs> They're very good at highlighting the, the five really key good points about it. Yes, we're secure. Yeah, How yeah. secure are you? They, 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 they only tell me the bad stuff when they're in their next job. But anyway. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. And so, you know, you, you, you know, we've all worked and written reviews and reports and, you know, obviously operating an independent test lab, our job is to show the good, the bad and the bottom line. And, and you know, we're not there trying to crucify any vendors for making mistakes, but we're there to try and, um, you know, assist the ones that are actually trying to do the right right thing um so yeah it's it's 
it's an interesting concept, but it's one that's proven and, and has, has worked in defense levels. And so we're, we're replicating that for, for your normal consumer and, and businesses and, and normal government agencies and infrastructure. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, I understand that this broader concept um, has effectively been advocated by none other than the five eyes powers of US, Canada, UK, New Zealand and Australia. Is that true? Yeah, so in 2019, um, a statement of intent was signed by all five ministers for those countries uh, around IoT security. Um, I always like to read between the lines when five governments can get five ministers to actually sign a document. Luckily, it's only an A4 document with a few key dot points. And um, yeah, reading between the lines, it essentially says... um, We've had a look at this and, and it's a problem which is actually bigger than us as government departments and agencies and we'd actually like to um, to put the onus back on the industry to step up and, and try and volunteer something that, that may be workable. Uh, in my experience, you know, I've been doing independent testing for 20 odd years and working with government departments and agencies, it is a hard job. You know, I really think that the majority of people that work in government um, are trying to do their best, but it is a very difficult, especially when you're talking about security, it's a difficult um, path to, to tread because uh, the next incident is only just around around the corner. Um, and I think from a vendor perspective or an industry perspective, it, you don't want the government necessarily to force you or mandate you to, to regulate and step in. So. Self-regulation is probably a good step, but it's got to be something that has enough checks and balances to give, I guess, the, the, the purchases of those technologies at least enough confidence that they're, they're making a, a right purchasing decision. Don't get me wrong, a lot of procurement departments and agencies do do a lot of due diligence, but a lot of it is desktop-based or paper-based. And when you're talking about security, it's only as good as the day you're in it. So I think... Um, I think one of the key things is making sure that they have a reference point where they do have an evaluated products list that they can refer to when they are looking at, at buying those um, those IoT devices. So, so what would you like the Australian government, I guess specifically the Department of Home Affairs, to do to support this concept? Yeah, so we, we have been working very closely with them over the last three or four years as this has been in, in development and we are in fairly regular contact um, with them and they have their own challenges as well. Um, I think the main thing we want them to do is recognise the, the scheme, the program, and support it internally. So when, when we ran a similar scheme in, in the UK in 2006 to 2011, the best thing that their um, Home Office did was release a letter to all procurement departments um, within critical national infrastructure and government uh, electronic security um, stating if, if the product has this certification, then um, give it a higher weighting or preference uh, on your security evaluation because it means it's actually gone through a certain level of independent due diligence rather than um, just a vendor making a claim that their product does conform with, um, with the requirements at that point point in time. So it's a bit like getting ISO 9001 for your business to have a quality management system that's implemented. You don't necessarily need to have it mandatory to respond to a tender, but if you have it, it's an easy tick box to say, yes, we're certified to ISO you know, 9001 rather yeah. than um, rather than saying, yes, we do have a quality management system and now I have to explain how my quality management system actually works. So yeah, it's, we just want their recognition and support, which, you know, they've, they've given, which is, which is good. And hopefully as it evolves, then we'll get more of that. 
Yeah. Okay. Now, as we indicated there, this has been a few years in, in the making. Um, you just you said that you're at the pilot stage now. What are the next steps and what needs to happen to bring this into force and, and make it a part of the furniture of the internet? Yeah, so we're in the process of signing up um, Host Country Association in, a, in Australia. Um, we've got a decision authority and an interim test facility appointed who are going to run the pilots. Um, and then essentially once a pilot's been proven, we'll actually launch it publicly. So with any luck, it'll be this year. Um, and yeah, we'll just start start rolling out and start populating that evaluated products list because it is security. It's not a one point in time. You don't just get the certificate and then it's good for the next two years. It's That's not a tick box yeah. exercise. Um, so the decision authority's role is to actually continually monitor common vulnerabilities and exploits as they're known within the, um, I guess, the ecosystem. And they're, they're, you know, there's there's a plethora of information publicly around those as they're released and, and vendors start mitigating them. Um, part of the requirements with a lot of the IoT best practices and good practices uh, is that the vendor has a vulnerability disclosure policy. So they have to have very, very clear chains of command to ensure that when an issue is identified with their products, they quickly um, or efficiently and effectively remediate that without opening up other ones. So there is a there is a process within the certification of having like a traffic light system where um, where certifications are either suspended or um, notifications are put up to ensure that vendors are currently working through known um, CVEs as, as, they're, as they're discovered and we'll work closely with those vendors to ensure that they're retested and so that their products are always uh, up to date and the certifications still stand and, and are valid. As I said, it's not an easy exercise. There's been a lot of process and effort which has gone into ensuring that uh, I guess every stakeholder in the chain has some, some level of comfort that things are being done accurately and efficiently and to a high degree of quality and, and giving people that assurance that they they require okay okay well best of luck with it matt um thank it, you it, it's, a, it's a terrific initiative and uh, there don't seem to be a lot of countries doing it so it would appear that australia's on the vanguard here is that right we'd like to hope so yeah singapore's recently launched a cyber um security mark for modems and and routers um which is which is quite interesting there's been a number of um countries that have sort of put something up but the issue is trying to build a global program, something that vendors can get behind. Because ultimately, IoT isn't just an Australian problem or, you know, a a Singapore problem. It's something that people need to rely on. And that's always one of the difficult things. But seeing the five eyes get behind um, something, you know, having at least a statement of intent around IoT security means at least five countries hopefully will be as united as they possibly can in in the fight against... um, against poor levels of security and consumer and, and IoT products. So, so yeah, hopefully yeah, and, we'll and, be the And, of course, there's a, there's a lot of collaboration in the APEC world as well in terms of mutual acceptance of accreditations, not, not just in communication technologies but more broadly. Um, yes. Presumably, you'd be seeking that eventually. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I'm not just saying the five eyes. I mean, any nations are willing to... Um, participate i mean the, the evaluated products list will be public so anyone can look at it and they can access it and decide which products actually have passed and things like that so yeah it's it's a straightforward process and yeah you can't you know australia is not 
we are a big country. We do play well with technology, but at the end of the day, we're not the biggest consumer of those vendors' technologies. And if it was just uh, Australian only, then I think we'd have a lot of, um, we'd be pushing it uphill, yeah, <laughs> as they say. Yeah. Okay, well, look, once again, thank you very much for joining us today, Matt, and best of luck with it. Yeah, no worries at all. Thank you, Graham. Comstay Live, I have Rowan Pierce, the executive editor of Comstay in the house. Welcome, Rowan. Hey, Graham. Okay, first up, um, there was a survey which came out this week um, from a financial counselling association that had some quite disturbing findings about what goes on in the telco industry when it's dealing with financially distressed customers. Tell us all about it, Rowan. Yeah, so this was pretty pretty grim reading, really. It was a, basically a, a study of the telco sector by Financial Counselling Australia. And it was looking at the experience of like financial counsellors and what they kind of report about their clients' experience when dealing with telcos when they're kind of financially distressed. So every, every financial counsellor who participated, and there was like quite a significant number, reported that they had clients struggling with telco debts. And they also... Um, they also reported that there was kind of like widespread instances of mis-selling. So, for example, 80% of the counsellor surveys surveyed reported having clients that experienced mis-selling. It's really, really horrific stories in there. I mean, like, you know, like one case, an intellectually disabled client of a counsellor got sold a new mobile service every time they phoned up to explain that they couldn't afford their existing service. And so this kind of thing, it's it's a bit of a worry. I mean, like, obviously, we, we saw recently, like, Telstra is facing a $50 million fine after some of its licensed stores engaged in mis-selling. So it's pretty, even from a business perspective, let alone a moral perspective, it's a pretty serious um, issue. And also, the... the the study rated every um, every major telco is rated as having less than acceptable kind of response to hardship. So on the surface, at least, it's pretty it's pretty bad stuff. Although diving in there, there were some kind of indications from um, some of the kind of like individual responses from counsellors that things had actually um, improved. Uh, obviously, Comms Alliance came out and said that they were they were still scrutinising, but the the study itself pointed to kind of like some areas of improvement they can made. But I think that the whole thing is kind of a unfortunate result, particularly during COVID when you had actually telcos rolling out kind of a whole lot of new measures to kind of support customers in financial distress. And I guess actually the, the other point I'd make too is that Telstra, um, Telstra told me that they'd actually seen a decreasing number of customers who had been taking advantage of hardship provisions. And they said that that was, they think that that's because they've been doing things like, you know, obviously like scrapping lock-in contracts and like putting more emphasis on matching customers with the right plan and that kind of thing. So, you know, that it's, 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 it's grim reading, but hopefully things are kind of heading in the right direction, I guess. Yeah, I mean, obviously not a little one-way street there, but there clearly is a gap between the rhetoric and the reality of telcos generally in this space. And um, it, it was it was good to see Communications Alliance tre- treating this seriously and, um, and keeping a dialogue uh, going on it. Um, moving on, Aussie Broadband had a investor update this week and uh, you were there. What, what did Phil Britt tell us? Yeah, so I, I guess this followed their announcement earlier this week. Um, the, the big thing was they, they had a connection update. They had a kind of brief guidance update too. But the, the big thing was obviously their new um, white label platform and the announcement that they either had this platform and B, they'd signed its first customer. In fact, this whole platform was developed to serve this customer essentially. So Aussie hasn't revealed who the customer is. 
But they said that they have 25,000 existing broadband subscribers that are going to be migrated to Aussie's network. And also, three, you know, the, the company has 3 million recurring customers of another type of service. So we've been, obviously, wildly speculating the opposite it could be. Like one, one name that came up, for example, is Origin Energy, because that roughly fits those kind of numbers. Um, but yeah, Aussie's basically keeping mum on who it is. Um, so the, the idea is basically, you know, uh, Aussie Broadband will provide the network, they'll provide the onboarding and the customer support, while the white label customer will be like, you know, responsible for sales and marketing. And Phil Brett also said that there, um, Aussie's in discussion with other potential customers of this platform. Like he doesn't expect a large number of customers to sign up to it, but he thinks there's potential to get a small number of customers, but with a significant kind of volume, which obviously would be really great for Aussie Broadband. Um, and he, he said, for example, this customer that signed up, their their existing broadband subscriber and potentially whatever other um, people they bring onto their broadband offering has a very different usage profile to Aussies. Like Aussie broadband, you know, sells kind of like to a lot of customers that want high speeds. They have big data volumes. Whereas this this customer, their existing broadband subscribers. Um, have a very different different profile of like kind of more standard usage. So that's going to complement Aussie's existing customer base quite nicely. Actually, the other thing Phil said was he provided an update on their fibre rollout, which is um, he said they have fibre in the ground in Perth and New South Wales as well underway. And also he's expecting South Australia and Queensland fibre rollers to kick off on the next six to eight weeks. So. Okay, thanks for that. that that's interesting. Um, Aussie broadband has a really interesting problem. <laughs> I guess it's not the worst problem, but their stock price has just ballooned out in the last few months. Uh, I think it's nearly 200% higher than listing price. And that, that, I mean, obviously that's better than having your stock price tank, but it does create a pressure. <laughs> You've got to deliver on the incredibly high expectations of your shareholders there, but it seems that Aussie broadband is doing all the right things and... and uh, um, and uh, and uh, growing the company and doing new things and innovating and expanding. Anyway, on that note, Rowan, thanks very much for joining us today. Cheers.